You are listening to the Women of the Military podcast, where we share the stories of female service members and how the military touched their lives. I'm your host, military veteran, military spouse, and mom, Amanda Huffman. My goal is to find the heart of the story and uncover issues women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Today's guest is Katarina Simons. Katarina joined the Army in 2009. She served for five and a half years on active duty before transferring to the Army Reserves. She was in the Reserves for just under two and a half years, making her total time in service seven years and 11 months. She was a judge advocate or JAG officer while in the military. And for the moment, she is a stay-at-home mom studying for a human resource certification and pondering whether to use her GI Bill or do something completely different. Welcome, Katerina. Hello. Good morning. I'm so glad to have you on and to hear a little bit of your story. So let's just dive in with why did you decide to join the military? Well, primarily because my husband at the time, by the time I joined, was active duty. We had dated for several years uh, before we got married. He was a bit of a slow learner. And during that, uh, during that dating period, he had already been onto one deployment to Iraq in 2003, right when the war started. When he came back from that deployment, he got out and I started law school. And about a year into my law school, he decided he wanted to get back in the army. And the army, being a military spouse and a lawyer is a really bad combination because every time you move, you have to spend the time and money to get a new law license. It usually takes a couple of thousand dollars to apply to sit and take the bar exam. It usually takes you a couple more thousand dollars to take a study course for that state's specific bar exam. Um, And then it can take you six months to a year to actually get the license. Um, That's getting a little bit better now with a group called Military Spouse JV Network, and they have worked really hard for uh, licensure laws that let Uh, military spouses come in through reciprocity with other states. But at the time, that wasn't really available. And so I was looking at a future of being a military spouse and having to take a new bar exam every two years and then be out of work for a year. And then a year after I was eligible for work again, take another bar exam, which wasn't all that appealing. And though I had been around the army enough to know that I liked helping something that was bigger than myself. So when he got back in, I I applied for a JAG internship to make sure I checked it out kind of at close hand. And when that was done, then I decided to apply for the JAG Corps. That's interesting. I know a military spouse who's a lawyer, and I heard a little bit of her struggles of not being able to practice every time she moves. So... Yeah, I think there's they're up to 33, 34 dates or so that they've really pushed and advocated hard for licensure um, reciprocity for military spouses. But um, it varies state by state and not every state has it. It depends on how many years you've been practicing. And sometimes you have to have like a local lawyer to supervise you at first and that sort of thing. It's just, it's really difficult. So when you're a JAG officer, you just have to be licensed in a state and stay current because you're practicing military and federal law. It doesn't really matter what state. And so it was a good fit for what our situation was going to be. I was significantly older probably than the average bear. I went back to college late. I was the first person in my family to go to university in my immediate family. So I went back to college late and then I went to law school late. And so I joined the army quite late compared to the average person, I think. And what was your experience doing the internship? Was it similar to what active duty life was like or... Somewhat. You don't, as an intern, you're limited to 40 hours a week. Uh, PT was totally optional, but uh, you're kind of your 
report from your internship really played into if you applied for a commission, their their feedback on how you did the internship made a difference. So it was optional, but if you really wanted to, to apply for a commission, then it wasn't quite as optional. But at the end of the day, it was still a 40 hour a week position. It was a federal job kind of thing. It's only, um, I think it was eight weeks. It's either eight or 10, but I think it was eight. And so everyone was really welcoming the active duty folks were super welcoming. The the civilian folks were where I was, and at that time, a little bit less so, perhaps. But it seemed like everybody had a lot of camaraderie, and it was really interesting because they bounce you around from job to job to job, or at least they did for me on the internship. So you get kind of a, a wide variety to see what you're going to possibly be doing later on. So it was a, it was a good experience, but I wouldn't say it's it's reality because you're not you're not under their thumb the same way as you are once you swear in. That makes sense. So you were, so when you went on active duty, your husband was on active duty already? He was. He was, so he, we got married in 2006. Uh, That fall, he went back on active duty after a rather lengthy process of getting his commission back. And he was local, semi-local to me. I was going to law school in Oregon. He was at Joint Base Lewis-McChord. So he was up in Washington State. But in the early, in early 2007, he had to go to Fort Riley, Kansas for training, was doing a military transition team where he would train Iraqis to be better soldiers and fight their own fight. We knew that the three months later from that was going to be another deployment. So I stayed in Oregon and did law school and he deployed again. I got to juggle my last year of law school really kind of between the, I had the deployment or the internship, rather, and then his deployment bowl um, and try and do law school. It probably wasn't my best year study-wise. I was a bit distracted. That sounds like a lot. It was an interesting experience because Oregon, uh, Salem, Oregon's super liberal, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. I probably lean more liberal than conservative anyway, but there aren't any military bases. There's reserve units and there's guard units, but there aren't any active duty bases in, in Oregon. And so there wasn't really any family support. I, I found other families from reserve units and, and made friendships there. But the law schools at the time were particularly anti-military uh, based on the don't ask, don't tell thing. They um, <laughs> Law schools, a lot of them tend to, to run fairly liberal, although they're all cons- there are conservative ones. Um, but as a whole, they had a policy in a lot of them that was just very anti, don't ask, don't tell, because I felt it was very discriminatory. It's a totally different world now, but this was, this was 2005 to 2008. And right. so they would, uh, my last year of school, they sent out an email that said, oh, the JAG recruiters are coming. They had to allow them on campus or risk losing their federal funding, but they, they didn't agree with, with the military. And I really kind of took issue with that. Said, hey, my husband's getting shot out right now. Your secretary's son is getting shot at right now and you're sending out these emails <laughs> that are, are really uh, unsympathetic um, and, and not very very welcoming to those of us who have people in harm's way or want to be one of those people that's going to be in harm's right. way. Very off-putting for that last year. So there was, while well, I had my close circle of friends to support me through that deployment that last year of law school, um, where I was juggling the worrying about him and trying to get through school, um, the school itself was not terribly supportive. Your husband was deployed and you did the internship and you were finishing school. And then when did you go on active duty? Was he home from the deployment? 
or how did that work? So I did the internship summer of 2007 at the height of the surge. That was at, well, I was at JBLM. And then I went into the fall, I went and finished my third year of law school. So that was, I graduated in May of 2008 and he got back about two weeks before graduation. So he was able to make it to my graduation, which was really cool. He went back to Kansas to go to command general staff school. Um, and I stayed in Oregon to study for the bar exam and take the bar exam. And then after the bar exam, which is in at the end of July. Then I did a road trip with a law school friend and we drove out to Kansas together with what of my worldly goods had not already been shipped. And on our second calendar anniversary of our wedding, we finally actually got to move in together. Only took two years, right? <laughs> yes. Thank you, Army. Being mill the mill is really hard. I, I've experienced that. Not yeah. exactly, but we've been separated. We were separated a lot. We were active duty. After my, after I got to Kansas, then I had, um, I'd wait on bar results and I was waiting on a medical waiver for joining for a vision issue. Um, and then that all came together in the fall and I went away to officer training in February of 2009. Um, he was still in active duty and he was doing CGSC. So we, we got to live together for six months and then I, I went away again. And then did you get stationed together after that? So uh, for the JAG Corps, I did um, six months of training, fair amount of three, three months or so in Virginia. And then the most miserable two and a half, three months of my life at Fort Sill, Oklahoma, whereupon I told my husband that I loved him dearly. But if he ever got stationed at Fort Sill, we were going to be geobatching. Part of that being uh, when, I was doing my, when I was doing my training, we did... like basic in-processing at Fort Lee, Virginia. And then we did three months at the JAG school, which is actually, looking back on it, is really nice. It's in Charlottesville, Virginia. It's on the University of Virginia campus. You lived in hotels, but you were getting up and meeting and doing PT and then doing school all day. And you're, you're in the army, but in school at the same time. If I had it to do over again, I might enjoy it. But at the time, you're going as a direct, especially as a direct commission officer, you're going from normal civilian life into the army. And so it doesn't seem so relaxing at the time you're doing it. Right. I was at least able to speak the language because I was military spouse. You had a lot of folks that most folks come in to the JAG Corps as direct commission officers. So they have no military experience. People that do have prior military experience, either as, either as enlisted or that are what we call FLEPS, the funded legal education program. So they were a... a another branch officer and then army, but another, another MOS, the army will pay for the FLEPS and then they come in. Those kinds of folks are, are really highly valued in the JAG Corps because most of us come in as direct commissions. So it's a bit of a culture shock and it's more so when you come in in your mid 40s or your mid 30s, you're, you're so much more malleable if you come in in your mid 20s right. and you've gone from high school to college or high school to the army. When you've had significant periods of time where you've controlled your own life and lived on your own and then you go into the army, I would say that was challenging. <laughs> Um, for, that, for them as well as for me. <laughs> uh, and so while I was doing my training, while I was finishing up at Fort Sill, my husband moved to Wiesbaden, Germany. And then once I was done with my training and a couple of weeks of leave, then I followed and joined him to go to First Armored Division at headquarters at the time was at Wiesbaden, Germany. Um, and we started getting ready for our deployment. Cool. So that's kind of like you're in Germany and then you're going to go deploy. So did you get to spend time overseas being stationed in Germany or were you primarily deployed? (laughs) Um, I was really fortunate. So we had, I got there in August. We spent the fall training to, to deploy. I was fortunate in that I only had to do the bare minimum of that. The JAG mission doesn't change a whole lot. 
for the most part when you're deployed versus when you're not, not like infantry versus home versus downrange or something. Right. Um, so we got a few months, we got a chance to get a, uh, a couple of trips in, some small ones, one little bit longer one. And I got to go see Vienna and Salzburg and um, I had always always since I was a small child, wanted to see the, the Bazan Stallions at the Spanish Riding School in Vienna. So I got to complete that sort of bucket list item. And then I went up and saw my cousins in Sweden, which was another bucket list item. And then we settled down to more training to deploy. And on January 1st, we were in the gym at seven o'clock and I had been in the army less than 12 months and we were on our way to Iraq. But when we got back from Iraq, then we had five, five and a half months in Wiesbaden. And then they transferred us down to Grafenwehr, Germany, which is a major army training base in Germany. And I, we spent three years there. So I kind of did short bookends in Wiesbaden and then a longer chunk down south. And you and your husband were deployed together? Is that- yes. What was it like to be deployed with your spouse being there? Because that's pretty rare. We were really um, lucky in that we our, our planning turned out well. We knew when we looked for places to go that the unit we were headed to in Germany, we were going to be deploying. I've never deployed outside of deploying with my husband, so I don't have anything to compare it to, but okay. we did. We had to get, despite the fact that they were married, we had to get a written exception to policy so that we could share a chew. Even though everybody knew we were married, we still had to get it in writing that it was okay that we'd be in each other's living quarters. So we did that, and that was nice. Um, he worked quite a bit longer hours uh, for his job. He's an artillery officer. He's uh, doing a lot of the targeting work out of First Armor Division headquarters when we were there. So he was working longer hours than I had to. I was working uh, the legal assistance mission, which I guess most people in the military are fairly familiar, but I think it's handled a little bit differently in the Air Force. In the Air Force, I think every JAG officer does some legal assistance and some other stuff. In the Army, we actually dedicate usually your first job in the military to legal assistance, and that's really all you do. So helping people with landlord-tenant issues and financial property loss investigations and bad OERs or NCOERs and a lot of family law, some immigration, kind of a grab bag of stuff. So I did that, and we had some like longer days in terms of 12 or 13 or 14 hours, but he had more like 16 17 hour days. So usually I was in bed by the time he, he uh, came home and then home to the chew. Uh, and uh, he got in bed and then we got up at the same time and, and uh, I wouldn't work out and he would go to work. So we sometimes saw each other for breakfast. Uh, we, we never saw each other for work because I worked in a different section of Victory Base and there was only one one car for the office. So it wasn't feasible to see him for lunch. And I usually didn't see him for dinner either. So breakfast was usually my shot. The division did uh, give us Sunday mornings off. And so we, we got to have like Sunday mornings together, more or less, which mostly was spent resting and, and maybe a more leisurely breakfast. Um, there was a fair amount of jealousy from other soldiers um, in terms of, oh, you're so lucky, you know, you're you're here with your wife or you're so lucky you're here with your, your husband. And that was always kind of a little frustrating. So it's like, well, this isn't luck. Like, this is my choice. I joined the army at, you know, 34 years old because I was tired of being on a different continent from my husband. So this was, this was a deliberate choice on my part. And if you would like to go home and ask your wife, hey, do you feel like joining the army and deploying with me and see what kind of answer you get. Most of the time, they're not going to do it. So uh, in, in our case, it, at that time period, it worked for us. We didn't have any kids and I was willing to take that leap, but it wasn't 
luck. It was a choice. It was reasonably fortunate that we got actually assigned to the same unit and we right. both got to deploy together. But but the opportunity to have that happen was not luck. Well, and then about, I'm sorry. Oh, I was going to say, you guys spent so much time apart just to get to that point. You're like, did you want to go through all that? Just so, you know, we could be deployed to right. act together. Yes. Yay. I mean, we, we like to joke that I got to have my first, you know, indirect fire, um, incoming fire experience with my husband. How many people, how many couples get to have that experience of like waking up in the morning and having the alarm go off and, and hitting the floor together and he gets to see how you react the first time. Um, so there was that. And then about six months into the deployment, the division thought they were going to open up a second headquarters uh, in Anbar province at Al-Assad Air Base. Okay. Um, and so they, the JAG Corps is very, um, you only have to tell them once and they are afraid if they push back on anything, they will be viewed as not real soldiers. And so you tell them to do something, you know, higher headquarters tells them to do something once and they get on it immediately. Um, the rest of the division really dragged their feet at sending anybody to Al-Assad, but the JAG office uh, picked people to go out to Al-Assad and I was one of them. So the last six months of the deployment, um, we were all the way across the country from each other, but we were still in the same country. I could pick up a zipper phone and call him and talk on the classified phone when I wanted to. Right. So we had, we, had that go- we had that going for us, which was, which was nice. The division never ended up opening a second headquarters in Al-Assad. The rest of the sections all dragged their feet and kicked up enough of the fuss that it never happened. We had a satellite JAG office out there anyway because they had already moved us. Interestingly, the they said it was all random, but we had a number of married couples that had deployed together and they broke up every one of them in, in choosing who to move out to that satellite office, except one who was a court reporter. So she had to be where the actual court and court marshals were happening. And her husband was a Marine and they had no control over him. The rest of us, they managed to send half of the couple out to Al-Assad. In fact, one of our paralegals, one of our E4 or E5 paralegals got divorced after we moved to Al-Assad and they pulled her back to Baghdad. So they claimed it was all, they claimed it was all coincidental, but it didn't look very coincidental from our standpoint. That's really wrong. Sometimes the military does weird things. Indeed. <laughs> you know, we still, like I said, we could, we could talk on the phone and that sort of thing. And we had saved our R&R for the second half of the deployment. We went on R&R nine months into the deployment. Um, so we only had a little bit left when we came back and we got to do that together. And that was fun. It was an it was an interesting experience, and I'm and I'm glad I did it. And I always say that the really funny part is I enjoyed Iraq a lot more than I enjoyed Fort Sill. Did you face any struggles while serving in the military? One of my bigger struggles was simply, like I said, coming in later. There's a lot of nonsense rules in the military where they treat you a lot like a child because you do have a lot of young, immature especially young men coming in. And so that's just sort of the way that the institution works. But when you come in as an adult in your mid-30s, those are a lot harder to stomach. That was a struggle personally. And then there was a struggle too in terms of as an officer married to an officer who was not JAG, I really observed how different the JAG core culture was and how they treated their officers much more like enlisted versus how I saw other other MOSs and their officers get treated much more like adults. So that was a struggle for me personally. It probably made 
my bosses like me a little less because I would I would sometimes point out those discrepancies. But probably the biggest struggle for me was we had originally thought we didn't want to have children. The year after our deployment, we decided we did want to have a child and I was already past my mid-30s. And so even though it was a bad time in my JAG career, it was kind of now or never if we were going to have a child. And being, if you've done it, I think. So being a person who chooses to get pregnant while still serving on active duty, women, I think, are already not quite viewed as equal in a lot of ways, at least in the Army. I think the Air Forces might be better, but then you add pregnancy to the mix. And and that was definitely a struggle sometimes, you know, past the 28-week mark. I don't know how it works in the Air Force, but at the 28-week mark in the Army, on your medical profile, you are limited to a 40-hour work week, including your physical training, but not the personal hygiene time. So no more than eight hours a day and more than 40 hours a week. And, and when I tried to abide by that, when they tried to make me go longer hours, they, they, they told me I didn't have to use my pregnancy as an excuse and I could stay longer if I felt okay and, and so on and so forth. And basically implied that I was just shamming. And that was really upsetting to me. There's a lot of things you can fake as far as injuries. I could be faking that my knee hurts or that my back hurts or, or whatever, but we have an ultrasound. There's no doubt that there's really a baby in there. Right. And so it was kind of, that was sort of the end beginning of the end of my military career because I was told you don't have to use this as an excuse and you don't have to abide by your medical profile by my superior. And I think he was getting it from the superior above him. Um, I don't know that I can blame him himself personally because I don't know the background of that, but I had to go back to my office and send him an email and say, if you want me to violate my medical profile, you need to give me that as an order in writing so that if I do and something happens, I'm not at fault for violating my medical profile. I think it's in, think it's in place for the, to, you know, the welfare of myself and my unborn child. So my preference is I'm going to abide by my doctor's recommendations. If you're telling me not to do that, it has to be in writing because I know that if I violate that profile and something happens, it's on me unless I can prove that, it was, that it's on you. And, and their attitude towards me really changed once I drew that line in the sand which was really disappointing. That is really um, disappointing because that's that's one of the things I've heard from women is the struggle of like women have fought for the rights of like not having to deploy for a year now. That was six months and when I left the yeah. school, now it's a year. And they even mm-hmm. like push back and they're like, oh, well, you don't really have to follow that. You should just go. I knew someone who went TDY when she had a four month old because they were like, well, you don't have to go. But if you don't go and like she ended up going because they like kind of pushed her into a corner. But that wasn't the right thing for her to have to do because she had a four month old and had to leave her baby behind. And um, absolutely. Yeah. And I know someone who was tasked with the deployment and it was like uh, at 11 months and she was like, I can't go at 11 months because women fought, women and men fought so that I could have this 12 month period to stay home. And if I go before that time, then I'm just, she ended up deploying at 13 months instead of 11 months, but she got Mm -hmm. that 12 month window and she stood up for herself, but also for the other women that would come behind her. So, right. I mean, I had as a, as a, an attorney and as a captain, you know, I had the wherewithal to say, hey, give me that in writing if you want me to violate that. But if I was, you know, an E3, I'm not probably going to have the wherewithal to, to, to do that. Right. Um, but there was a major in the same unit I was at who was always borderline over late, like having to get taped for, for PT tests. 
and so she didn't look picture perfect and the, the JAG core, your runtime and, and your weight are like super duper important to them. Almost sometimes it seems like more important than some, some of your legal skills, but that might be bitter ex-captain talking. I don't know. Um, but she had a three or four month old and they wanted to send her on a deployment because they said you're, you're, you don't have a deployment and you're at risk for not getting promoted. We think that you need to do this if you want to get promoted to major. And she deployed with like this three or four month old and she still got passed over for major. Meanwhile, we had a guy who went from major to lieutenant colonel who was significantly overweight. I mean, just not, not even close. Maybe he passes PT test. I don't know. And I think he's a good guy and he's a good lawyer, but I know that she got treated differently because of her weight than he did, you know, made the sacrifice and made the deployment to Afghanistan with a four month old. And, and still that wasn't good enough. Those kind of struggles. And, and it's hard for me to tell personally how much of it is like the individual people that were above me at the time, not necessarily my supervisors, but my supervisor's bosses. And how much of it is the fact that I went in late and probably the, the rules, like I said, kind of already rubbed me raw when they didn't make a lot of sense anyway, just because I came in and wasn't as adaptable as somebody who was, you know, 10 or 15 years younger. So it's hard for me to tell that. But in the long run, that's also the child and whatnot. I know eventually into why I transitioned off to active duty. And my next stop in my JAG court career was I had to be a prosecutor. And the prosecutors typically work really long hours. You're serving the needs of the judge and you're serving the needs of all your unit commanders that you are their legal advisor and you have your JAG Corps leadership above you. And so you're on call 24-7. You're coming in on the weekends. You're staying till nine o'clock at night, just super long hours. And I had a newborn and I said, that's they, I was supposed to transition to that job when I was pregnant. And a couple months into the pregnancy, I said, I think this is a bad a, a bad choice. If I wasn't going to be pregnant, this would be the right step for me in my career. And it might still be the right step for my career, but I don't think it's the right step for the people that I would be supporting as their criminal justice advisor, because I'm going to come to a period where my profile is going to stop me from being there those long hours that they expect. And then I'm going to come back and we have court marshals. I have seen court marshals run from eight o'clock in the morning to six o'clock the next morning with barely a break because the judges are docketed so tightly that they don't have the space, the time in their calendar to space out, like add an extra day. Um, like they don't want people to go for bathroom breaks. And I'm going to be like every two and a half hours, Hey, I need to go pump milk for my baby. It's, I just don't think it's going to be a good fit for me. I'm really sorry. And so they, they kept me as an administrative law attorney, but it was on top of that, my having drawn that line in the sand about my profile. And so it just kind of continued a downhill slide where they just kind of looked at me as not wanting to work hard. And and I guess to some extent that you could call that true once the baby came, like, no, I don't want to be there at nine o'clock at night when I've got a three month old. Thank right. you. You know, who's waking me up in the middle of the night constantly. And I might actually want to, you know, spend time with with my infant. So, but in the long run, then my husband deployed again when my daughter was about nine months old. We were at that point in different units on the same on the same base. He was in, a, in an operational unit and I was in a training unit. So we didn't deploy, but he did. And during that deployment, it just, it became just a lot more obvious that both of us being uh, active duty was not going to be a good fit for the kind of family I wanted to raise, um, just the demands that the military can make on you when you're active duty. And when it's both of us and there's nobody to backstop you and you're in a foreign country, so you don't have family nearby and that sort of thing, it was just not going to work. And then we had an incident where we had a, an, a female enlisted 
paralegal who there were some medical concerns with her pregnancy and I didn't feel that they were taking them seriously enough. And I raised the issue a couple of times and they kind of told me I was just being overprotective because I was a new mother myself. And then she lost the pregnancy and I was really super upset about that. And I was really fortunate. I had a fabulous supervisor who kind of thought when I was worried about it, that I was kind of, was kind of making a lot, a mountain out of a mole, molehill about the circumstances. But he also understood that if I didn't say something, that it was going to, and something happened, it was going to haunt me. So he let me take that up and helped me take that up. They ignored the concerns and then she miscarried her baby. And when I went to my leadership after the fact, and I said, hey, how are we going to make sure this doesn't happen again? Because I think that some of the decisions we made affected her and, and impacted her health. And they said, we think it was stress and you were stressing her out by raising this issue. And they tried to put it back on me. That was in November. On Christmas Eve, I dropped my resignation paperwork. I'm lucky in terms of my, my husband. You know, I've always had him to bounce things off of. There have been a number of times, both when I was a FRG leader, a family readiness group leader, as his girlfriend, some other times as his spouse, and then then for this particular thing, I could bounce things off of him. And even if they were going to probably look, make him look bad, like some of the concerns that I brought up when I was an FRG leader and as a spouse, I knew had the potential that my making waves, it wasn't that he had done something wrong, but that me making waves in that position was going to you know, color people's view of him because that's just the way the military works. He has always supported me in doing what I felt was right and necessary, um, even if it had difficult consequences attached. And, and in this one too, he did that. I, we had enough by 2013. It's a far cry from the 2003 deployment. We had pretty good contact at that point while he was in Afghanistan. So it was, it was a variety of factors that made me make that decision. Maybe if I hadn't already been thinking, hey, I don't think this works so well for my family, maybe I would have worked through that situation and seen my way to stay in active duty. But with already kind of trying to make it work for my family and, and seeing how I wouldn't have wanted to deploy with a baby and the kind of hours that they had over you and not being able to spend time with your with your kid and that sort of thing. And then you threw that that last situation on and it was just, that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back for me. And I, I, I looked to switch to the reserves. And so you made the switch from active duty to reserves and you served for two and a, about two and a half years. What was that like and why did you decide to leave the military completely behind? The transition was more difficult than I anticipated. I was only only for part of one reserve unit. And so it's hard for me to tell what, what was that unit and what is the reserves in general. My unit didn't seem very well organized compared to the to the way I saw the active duty ran. We had we had an enlisted paralegal who actually had a law degree and she was the most organized person in, in that whole unit it sometimes felt like. You had some people that really were really good lawyers, but they also had really demanding jobs because um, we were a trial defense unit. They had really demanding jobs on the outside and then they were trying to juggle the, the reserves as well and that sort of thing. Part of it was the unit for me. It was all remote drilling, so I didn't actually have to, to drive in anywhere, which was nice except for PT and, and then we got together with a few folks in the local area and we did our PT tests together. And so it was nice to not have to, to drive in and stuff. But as far as the work went, it was a, like I said, a trial defense unit. And so it was really random. You never knew when you were going to get extra work. So it wasn't just the weekends I had to go in and, and drill my weekend a month. I also would have cases dropped in my lap. Who knows when? So you couldn't really plan your life 
very well. Um, and my husband was, uh, we were living in Tucson. He was part of a army unit attached to the Air Force base there. And he was TDY 50% of the month. And so you never knew. I was watching a two-year-old and I never really knew when I was going to get this extra work and I was going to have to juggle that and find a babysitter and, and do all that kind of thing. So that was more challenging than I expected it to be. And the lack of, of the, the differences between the reserves and the active duty were more stark than I expected them to be really. But mostly it was like, this is not really one weekend a month and my husband is gone at least half the month and I have a small child and nobody that lives near me. So we struggled through that for a couple of years, but it was pretty clear to me early on that I didn't want to stay in the reserves or long-term. Um, so there was, for me to be eligible for promotion, there was mandatory like distance education and then a, a resident portion I had to do as well. And I just didn't do that. And I knew it meant I would get passed over. Uh, and that was sort of my goal in the long run. So I would keep serving until they passed me over and they would have to pass me over because I wasn't educationally qualified. And so I just kind of did that and helped out as long as I could and, and made it so that there wasn't going to be any please stay or switch units or do whatever. Um, but in my time, I did my work, but made sure I could be done when I needed to be done. So I got done in the end of December of 2016. And my husband went on terminal leave for his retirement in the middle of January. And I went back to civilian work. We did it. We did a handoff. He got done. Went on terminal leave Friday afternoon. And on Tuesday, because it was a three-day weekend, I said, here's the child. Have fun. And I went off to work. So what was the transition like for him to get out of the military? And then you, did you go to work as a civilian lawyer? I did. He he did. I would say that the the transition period for him was pretty good in terms of he had classes at home he was going to do um, that sort of thing. So he kind of got to ease into it, and then he had a significant amount of transition leave. And he's been pretty involved. I, I kind of made it a point when the baby came to make sure that it was she had two parents, not one and a half. So he knew how to take care of her. And I had gone off for like weekends to relax or whatever before he'd done it. Um, I think it was a little bit of a transition to being the primary parent for him. And it was rough on our daughter because she doesn't remember me being active duty at all. All she remembered was mommy being home with her. So I think one of the hardest things for him was he was a primary parent, but she really wanted mommy. And so that was, he did a great job at it. I dealt with the sort of the mommy guilt. I would come home every day and my daughter, who's way of showing love is gifts would have something for me. It would be a drawing or um, a flower she picked. Or one day I got like a whole bowl of ponytail holders, like two ponytail holders held together by one of the bendy clippy barrettes. Um, I had a whole bowl of things, those contraptions that she had made. And I would bring her home a flower or a drawing or something because it was important to her that mommy was thinking of her when when she wasn't here with her. So it was, and she just got up earlier and earlier. I was trying to work out before work and she would just get up earlier so she could come snuggle in bed. So my fitness has suffered, I will say, because there's only so far I'm willing to, willing to move my uh, workout time. Last summer, we were doing, you know, 5.15 a.m. walks together, her and I. It was great for my daughter, I think, because she, like I said, only remembered mommy being home and us being on the Air Force Base and all the other mommies taking care of the kids and the daddies being, you know, away and the soldier and, and the hero and so on and so forth. And so I think it was really a fantastic way for her to see that men can care for families and men can stay home and take care of kids. And it doesn't always have to be the woman that's doing that and really sort of balanced out her 
earlier memories, which I think is really good and hopefully will lead to high expectations when, when someday she finds a partner, be that male or female, I have no idea. I think she will expect them to pull their weight around the house with parenting duties because she's seen both parents do it. I have one last question. What would you tell girls considering joining the military? I would tell them to join the Air Force. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we are we are a dual army family, but we lived on an Air Force base and it see and the Air Force kind of led the way. The Air Force and the Navy led the way in some ways in terms of improving maternity leave and that sort of thing for the Air Force. Even little things like you can wear your earrings or a ponytail in the Air Force and the Army won't let you do either of those things. The Army really tries to defeminize you and make you as androgynous uh, at worst or masculine at best in their view as more the men are the standard um, and the less female-like you can seem, the better you fit in. Uh, The Air Force from my outside observation, and you could probably correct me if you think I'm completely off base, um, the Air Force seems to be a little bit more accepting of the fact that you can actually be female and still get the job done. Um, And based on my experiences in the Army, I would say that that sounds like a more receptive environment to me than what I experienced. Who knows by the time my daughter is old enough to join and she sometimes says that she's going to be a soldier too, who knows what it will be like for her at that time. I mean, we're going through rapid periods of change for the Army in terms of women's capabilities and MOS options and that sort of thing. But what I've observed so far is that the Air Force is maybe a little bit better place to be women in the military. It's Um, funny that you mentioned the ponytail thing because I was in ROTC when that rule changed and you would think it's not really a big deal to wear your hair in a ponytail while you're PTing and I I knew the rule had changed but the male officers who were in charge they didn't mm-hmm. have blue and they were like why are you <laughs> And ponytails. And I was like, because the reg changed. And they were like, no, it didn't. And I was like, yes, it did. And <laughs> they had to go back and then be like, oh, you can wear your hair in a ponytail. But I was like, why do you care? Like, yeah. But yeah. yeah. It's the little things, man. I mean, it's it a is. lot. It's a lot easier to do PT with your hair in a ponytail than can swing. I mean, any guys listening are like, what difference does it make? Right? Well, because when you have to wear your hair in a bun, it comes loose and nope. then it's messy. And then you're out of regulation because it's messy. Um, but they aren't really meant to be like thrown around on the ground while you're doing sit-ups and this, that, right. and the other. Like a ponytail is a lot more practical for that. And so you can, if you're allowed to have it down like that, it works and you can still be following the regulation and yeah. be good and not be able to have, you know, like you must look neat and tidy and have uh, have your your perfect fun. Right. Uh, but make sure that you're, you know, being as physically cool as you possibly can. Exactly. Uh, so, so yeah, the, the little things would be nice. I think the army, since I have gotten out, has changed and now allows ponytails during PT, but I couldn't tell you that for sure because it's been a while in terms of since I've had to keep up with that because we did the remote drilling and whatnot with, right. the, with reserves for my unit. So um, I hope they have come into the 21st century and recognize oh, that we can, be, we can be effective even with a ponytail. <laughs> so go Air Force, my best advice at this point. I love that. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast this week. I've loved hearing your story and just hearing more about your experience. And I know that other people enjoy it too. So thank you. Thank you for letting me share it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women of the Military. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of the amazing stories I have with women who have served in our military.
Did you love the show? Don't forget to leave a review. Finally, if you are a woman who has served or is currently serving in the military, please email me at airmantomom at gmail.com so I can set you up to be on a future episode of Women of the Military.